How to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're vital. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to episode 446, where I sat down with Jordan Morris, a screenwriter and a writing coach who owns the Screenwriting Factory, where he has got some really unique ideas about writing. We'll kind of break those down a little bit more. Is a award-winning producer and director of films like Nintendo Quest and multiple festival best documentary winners. He's currently in a festival as we speak. You can find out more about Jordan over at the Screenplay Factory. And if you missed the last episode with Brooks Elms, I kind of met Jordan through Brooks. Uh, definitely want to hear both these interviews to learn all you can about coaching and what you can learn to be the best screenwriter you can be today. Before I get into the call, though, I want to reintroduce my producer, uh, Marion, and let's just kind of introduce her once again. She is really like the magic behind everything we're doing here. She's getting us all these great guests and does like the producing and editing and all kinds of great stuff here. So what was your kind of take on this interview with Jordan? I, I thought it was really interesting when he talks about the most important questions to ask yourself about a character, like this deep and personal questions about them and just to like really build a backstory and i think that's really important because for example like in tv as the story advances and the character evolves i think sometimes i see a lot of screenwriters just forgetting their their character's background or, or history and like for example um i don't know if, if you watch Grey's anatomy but i used to watch Grey's anatomy a lot <laughs> And there's this character called Karef, Dr. Karef, and he, on his last season, he does something that everyone in the fandom knew that he would never do that because mm. of his backstory. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think it's really important for screenwriters to, to always have that, like, that really build and establish a sense of who their character really is because if they do not fans will notice like fans notice that stuff and and even if they if the screenwriter doesn't like show it per se on the tv show or the film fans will find a way to build that backstory for the character and then when the character does something that they don't think the character would do everyone will be like yeah no that's that's bad screenwriting what they did is wrong <laughs> Yeah, I think that's like, it's something, especially gets caught out now where people are rewatching stuff so much more than they used to. They used to really, you'd see something on TV once a week and that was kind of it. But now with all the streamers and everything else, it's there. I think one of the, the more obvious ones, if you watch a lot of sitcoms, the first episode, usually they're still figuring it out and it's not quite there. The characters don't feel right. And it takes them a season or two to really step into that because you're combining what the screenwriter wrote with how the actor is portraying the role. And you'll see a lot of little mistakes between like the first and third season of shows like the office or parks and rec. They're just kind of figuring out what kind of character it is. So these interviews going back to like with Brooks and Jordan, these, these, some of these last two we've done, these writing coaches, it's been a lot of time really focusing on getting the characters right before they start the 
draft. And that's going to help writers not get so overwhelmed when they get to page 50 or 100 and something's not clicking because they didn't do that hard work in the very beginning, put the work in, make the character the best it could be. So these are just two interviews. Again, you can also go get my book, Ink by the Barrel, which is really covers my first like 200 interviews, kind of the best of how to be prolific. That's over at brockswinson.com. But really dive into these. Think how what Jordan and Brooks are saying in these in these last coaching calls about how you can turn your own characters, make them more real, make them more truth, not piss off fans later as we as we talked about with Grey's Anatomy. So I'll jump in now. Here's my call with Jordan. You can go steal my book over at BrockSwinson.com and learn everything else we're working on over at BrockSwinson.com. <laughs> how did I get bit by the radioactive spider? that is writing yeah uh, yeah well way back in the day I, I came out of live theater so i initially started as an actor there and i spent so much time in that space watching productions come together that i took a lot of interest in every other corner of production so i started making costumes and set pieces and designing sets and eventually got involved in writing plays um, and learned quite a bit at that point because there's no better way to to learn about what works and what doesn't than by putting it in front of a live audience and just watching it die. If it doesn't work here, you instantly know it, which is uh, terrifying, but really, really satisfying when you do write something that gets the response that you want to. So I had a chance to write a few pieces and then got into production, like um, actually directing and producing and took an interest in every corner of it. So eventually I, I kind of outgrew it because there's only so much that I could do in live theater before without spending tens of thousands of dollars to kind of take it to the next level. And I left and still had a reputation for being an actor. And I got cast in a small independent film. And during that shoot, which is a, a pretty terrible movie, like an unwatchably bad movie, but we learned a ton. And I started to apply everything that I'd learned in live theater to film as best I could. And went from being just an actor to uh, helping them scout locations. I built the principal prop for them because I had experience doing that too. And I just started putting up fires for them um, and eventually became their production designer and a producer on that film too. And most importantly, forged a really strong uh, friendship with the director of that film. His name is Rob McCallum. And we've worked together half a dozen times since on a lot of other projects, mostly documentaries, docu-series, that type of stuff. Um, which is something that we've just finished. Our biggest project yet just was completed on Canada's most beloved TV show, Our Mr. Rogers, which is known as Mr. Dress Up. So we just buttoned that one up and uh, it should get released this fall. We're very excited about that. Um, and then I just started taking on additional work in the film space and eventually took a real interest in sculpting stories like actually engineering stories and by chance i was recommended by a friend of mine to take over a screenwriting class for the local university and i had already taught at the college level uh, for a local college and uh, i guess their back was up against the wall and they had nobody to take over for this uh, course they collected all the money for it and didn't want to cut it <laughs> so i came in and said i was interested in it um, they gave me this big D-ring binder filled with the curriculum and I took it over home over the weekend, read it, came back and said, yeah, I'm interested in doing this, but I don't want to teach this because this is terrible. I just, this is an awful course. 
And they're like, oh, okay, fine. Then what? And I'm like, okay, give me, I got two weeks, then I'll build it from scratch for you. And if you let me do that, then I'd be happy to take it on. And amazingly, they let me get away with that. Um, and that was really the beginning of where I started to take writing super seriously. And I learned a great deal about writing by teaching how to write. And I still to this day, so like school's never out for me. And uh, I did that for several years and then found out that once you get a course approved, they don't want it to change. So I kept trying to evolve it and improve it and make it better every year. And they didn't like that. So eventually I left and partnered with the local film festival here in my city, the Four City Film Festival, and uh, did that for several years. I was like an independent teacher. And that led me to new relationships, different jobs. I did uh, development, TV development work for an outfit in Chicago for, for reality TV shows that were shot in California, which was a real eye opener, working in the reality TV space and being a concept developer, like coming up with ideas for shows. And uh, that was pretty wild. And two of those shows still exist and are still going right now. Um, yeah, and then I've settled into this kind of space now, which is as a mentor and a coach and story analyst. So I, you know, Brooks Elms, he was one of my mentors. I took his program and that leveled up because he was the guy that really taught me about the importance of process. And that's where I took an interest in a particular polished type of process that I had. And once I was inside his program, I got to see a lot of people kind of go through the process of just coming up with an idea and executing it and started to make notes about where all the pitfalls were and where people were kind of falling down. And then I created this additional process called the Story Forge, which was designed to be an antithesis to that experience where you've you've done a ton of work, you've worked on it for weeks, months, whatever, and you find yourself at the end of something with a copy you know, a completed screenplay that sort of works, but doesn't quite work. You know, it works and spits and starts. There's a couple sparks in it, but generally speaking, everybody's like, eh, you know, this isn't great. And you don't know why. You can't be sure of exactly why. And all the notes come back. You start moving around the deck chairs, trying to figure out what it is, but you can't really fix it because in reality, the concept wasn't developed enough from the very beginning. And it never had a chance to work the way it should work because most people will tell you that most of the stuff that's getting written is too raw. It hasn't been polished and distilled and like developed enough to really, really work well. <clears throat> so people go to the writing stage too quickly and end up writing something that doesn't work. And really there's not much more you can do than to start over again with it. And if you're not exactly sure how it's broken, then you don't even have the awareness to know that that's what you should do next. So, uh, Long story, as short as I can make it, uh, the Story Forge, which is kind of what I'm known for now, is a process, a development process that takes place over the course of an entire month. It's an interview process that I put the writer through, and I just pull all of the ingredients that we need to put together a really successful story out of them. Work very hard to preserve their unique narrative voice to make sure it feels like the story they wanted to tell and um, get really granular with it very early on and work out all the possible details that we can so that the writing process is just about the fun creative stuff like giving the characters voice you know putting on the icing so to speak but you've already got a beautiful foundation you know exactly how the story works and why it works and what the themes are and how everything's connected you've already worked out all that kind of stuff um, and i've been able to help 
a lot of people elevate the quality of their work and understand how to craft story in a more effective way since then. So it's been it's been great. I might, let me a few things there. Let me uh, we might jump around. So I want to go back to sort of the beginning. What was in the binder? What's the problem? Is it just too much focus on craft, or what are some of the problems with you know screenwriting one on one courses? It was pretty pedestrian stuff. Like, okay, here's a section on villains. Let's talk about creating a really great villain. And what we're going to do now is watch a 10 minute clip from Batman the Animated Series. Okay, that is a great villain. The Joker's a great villain, yes. But <laughs> I, I just found it really, really grossly oversimplified. Everything was really generic and boring. It was really, really boring. Spoon feeding, a lot of spoon feeding. There wasn't a lot of discovery. There wasn't a lot of answering the whys, which is critical. You know, why do we do this? Why does this work and that not work? All these kinds of things. So I just had to blow it up and I, I didn't feel good about teaching it. I wanted people to really get excited about it. And after I put my curriculum in place and we ran that for a couple of years, the student scores that came back because they ranked the, the actual courses as well and give the school feedback. So you get graded now as a teacher. And uh, I came back in the creative writing space. I got what I believe was the highest score. People were taking the course multiple times. It was just a very different experience for them. And probably because I had no idea what I was doing. Like I knew how to talk about story, but I didn't know how to put together a curriculum. So I made it really interactive ignorantly. And it was fun for people and stimulating and inspiring. And then, like I say, some folks were coming back and taking it twice and three times because they had such a good time going through it. So I just wanted to keep developing it, making it better and more interesting. And obviously things change from year to year in the industry. So I wanted to keep everything up to date too, but there was no support for that. So I just got frustrated and eventually left and partnered with the film festival, which was fine with me doing whatever I wanted to do. And you got, it's definitely a unique approach, which kind of Brooks also leans into this too, in terms of like the way your business and his business is set up is that you're not just trying to create a course and scale and be really obvious. It's very one-on-one -on -one approach, very like psychological to the person. Um, do you want to talk about some of the questions you might ask someone like in a first meeting? Yeah, sure. You're right. It's, it is one-on-one. -on -one and I, I mean, maybe there'll be some point in the future where I, I scale it and it becomes, you know, the one-to-many model or automatic videos and that kind of thing, which are pretty common out there too. But the success rate for books and videos and self-taught kind of courses of any kind are extremely low. That's, that's just the reality of it. So most people that take those kinds of courses don't succeed. Nothing against them. Um, it's just very difficult to properly interpret everything the way it was intended your first time through. So most people put themselves in the weeds and don't know it and then just get frustrated and eventually quit. So there's no replacement for mentorship, like learning from one person on a one-on-one -on -one basis. There's no better way to learn. It's not, it's the most efficient, fastest, and surprisingly cheapest way because mentors are not cheap to come by either. Uh, it's not for everybody, but if you consider how much time, effort, and money that you throw at other courses and books, and it, it's typically the most efficient way to learn. Whenever you have a question, if you're not sure, you've got somebody you can ask, they're looking over your shoulder the whole time saying, you know, well, that maybe isn't the most effective way to move forward. Consider this, you know, why are you making these choices? Explain yourself, that kind of thing. All really healthy things that make you learn really, really quickly. 
So people like Brooks did that for me and I embraced that. And now I've tried to do it with other folks. So if you ever see me doing a one to many style, like course, then you'll know that um, uh, things have changed, <clears throat> but that's not the idea right now. I get most satisfaction out of working one-on-one -on -one with people and watching the lights come on when we get to work together. Yeah watching them get really, really excited about an idea they have, but they hadn't quite figured out. So uh, starting the forge process is really about what are you trying to build? Very simple questions. What is it that you want to create and what's your vision for it? And one of my favorite exercises is just asking the writer to complete a sentence and they get one word to complete the sentence. The sentence is, this is a story about blank. And that's the point of entry to talk about theme. In my opinion, that's one of the most effective ways to talk about theme. What is this thing about? So take all of those, like the myriad, the galaxy of ideas that you've got for this thing, because everybody comes in most often loaded with a thousand different ideas they want to incorporate into this thing. But if you can't figure out what it is at its heart, like at its very center, then oftentimes you'll create mud. There'll be just too many things going on. So. This is a story about what? This is a story about family. This is a story about power. This is a story about, you know, whatever it might be. If we can figure out what that one word is, then we've started our conversation about what the themes are that hold the whole story together and give it its meaning. And I think that's one of the most simplest and one of the most significant things that you can start with. Actually, the, the very first interview I ever did for creative screenwriting, I spoke with a guy named Blake Masters. He had wrote, written the movie Two Guns at the time with Denzel Washington and Mark Wahlberg. I was pretty fresh out of college and that probably in an hour talking to him, I learned more than I did in school. And one of the things he said, cause I think when I was writing characters, I was like creating a list of attributes I thought were cool or interesting as opposed to a central dilemma. And his example for that movie, Denzel Washington will do whatever it takes. Mark Wahlberg has a, has a moral compass that keeps him from doing the same action. And that is, very obviously, it's in every single scene. It's all the comedy. It's all the action. It's all the drama. I think your when, I, when we were kind of just uh, for the listeners, we went through like a mini version of your uh, story forge. I think that was something that was very kind of back on my mind about that. Would you talk a little bit about that and maybe some examples you use like liar liar and you kind of mentioned some of those too. Yeah, like so. There's three for the mini that we went through. I should probably say that it takes about eight to 12 hours to go through the full version over the course of four weeks. The idea is that you'd have four sessions of two hours each and it's all interview stuff. Um, and eventually once we get a, a firm grasp of what it is that the writer's trying to make, then we'll start actually laying bricks and start creating a wireframe of the structure of the story and the plot and all of that and engineer the character's transformation. So the three major areas of concentration are the cast of the core three characters, the theme and uh, your protagonist specifically and the baggage that they bring into the story that helps kind of determine their motivations and how they deal with being put under pressure, all the obstacles that you throw at them. So you were talking about just um, understanding the character and the attributes that you kind of need to create an effective uh, transformation like an arc, is that what you were going at? Yeah, and maybe some of the examples you, you might frequently use that people are familiar with. Right, so there's a series of eight to 10 questions that we ask about the protagonist, about their history and how that history 
informs who they are when we first meet them and how that sets their transformational arc um, up. If you, don't, if you don't understand them in this particular way, then it's much more difficult to actually create a satisfying uh, arc. So a lot of people will do really extensive character profiles, like they'll tell you exactly what they wear every day and what they have for breakfast and all that kind of stuff, but they're not actually answering the most important questions, which is typically for a, a traditional transformational arc, because there are a number of different interpretations of what an arc is and what they can be. But if we're talking about a, a classic hero's journey kind of transformational arc, broken person becoming whole, that type of thing, that we want to know why they're broken when we first meet them. So we need to know what's happened to them in their past. The questions that we like to ask are, what was that original traumatic wound that was suffered? So before your story began, typically quite a long time before the story began, although there are always exceptions, they were wounded somehow. And it informs who they are when we first meet them. And they've kind of put up a protective barrier of some kind or cauterized that wound a little bit and they've forgotten about it. So we need to understand exactly what happened to them in the past that hurt them. And that helps shape who they are. So that's the first question. The second is that wound created an unfulfilled personal need of theirs. There is something that they need in their life that they don't have. They may or may not be aware of it. Typically, they're not even really that aware of it. They're denying it to a certain degree. So we need to come up with number two is that unfulfilled personal need. The third thing I like to talk about is their false identity. And there's two components to that. The first is their external public presentation. How do they present themselves to the world? What do people think of them? Um, this is their way of compensating for the wound in a, to a certain degree, but how do they present themselves and what might people say about them? You know, the people that they work with every day or they interact with regularly. What is their public presentation as false persona? Then there's the internal half of it, which is the, their self-image, or some people describe it as the lie that they believe. And we've all got critical voices in our head that tells us, tell us things like, you're stupid, you're ugly, you're fat, you're unlovable. You know, we've got really brutal critical voices in our minds. We want to know exactly what the critical voice in the protagonist is saying. What is that really mean-spirited voice in the back of their head telling them? That's really important. For a little color, there's often a hidden talent or a secret attribute or some kind of buried skill that looks like and uh, like it's almost problematic for them when we first meet them, but it becomes it can become kind of a key to them solving their problems at the end. So it seems like a liability, but it becomes an asset later on in the story. That one's not necessary, but it's fun if you can engineer that kind of thing in there. But building on the, um, the, the voices and the unfulfilled personal need, we want to understand next what their root fear is. It's a fear that they have that's worse than death. Given a choice of dying and dealing with this particular fear face-to-face, they choose death every time. So it's a deep fundamental fear that they have. And uh, if we can figure out exactly what that is, it's always informed by that original wound, you know, that traumatic wound that they suffered. But we need to understand what that is. Next, we want to figure out what their tragic flaw is or what some people call their defense mechanism. My favorite term for it is the definitive misbehavior. Because in Act 1, especially in the first half of Act 1, we need to see and understand who they are. And one of the most effective ways to do that is to watch them kind of um, execute this definitive misbehavior. 
Maybe they're, maybe they're bitter. Maybe they're cowardly. Maybe they're a bully. Maybe who knows what they are, but they've got this kind of thing that they're known for. Like, oh, that's such a thing that they do, somebody might say. Yeah. So we need to understand what that is. And then the final one is, what is the personal antidote? What actually needs to happen for them to be able to walk away from all that baggage, to know that the lie they believe is a lie, to actually embrace the truth and to go from their um, false identity to their true self? What would have to happen? What would they have to learn? That type of thing. And all of that stuff helps you kind of create a wireframe of their transformation. It's a really, really strong arc. It doesn't just happen all at once. If, if you've read weak screenplays, then they're the same character. So I always draw it out on a clock because that's the way I kind of map things out in my mind. You know, they start at 12 o'clock as being one person and they're the same, 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 same. And then they get to like 10 o'clock and suddenly they're a different person. Like it just happens suddenly. That's not the way it's supposed to happen. The audience should be able to see the transformation taking place throughout the entire story and watch them evolve through it. That's a really nice and satisfying arc. And obviously you want where they land and where they start to be as far apart as possible. So it's nice and dramatic and there's a sharp contrast between who they were when we first met them and who they've become at the end of the, the, the film as well. And that can be in reverse, right? If you're telling a tragic story, then you can kind of do what they call the dark inversion and have them start in a decent place and have it kind of destroy them throughout the story. That works too but it's mapped out very similar. So, um, sorry, I'm talking a lot. <laughs> no, it's good. You were looking for some examples, like some of the funnest ones are, well, that was thematic examples. So not so much about character examples when we were talking about things like liar, liar. That was, mm-hmm. that's a great one to talk about the dual plot line philosophy, like story model, which not a lot of people use. A lot of people think that you just have one story playing out. And um, I used that for many years. And then I stumbled across this thing that somebody else called the dual plot model. And I've taken that and run with it and infused a bunch of other ideas into it. And I call it the life and the death story model. Hmm. So there are two things that are happening. There's basically the life story of your protagonist and there's a cast of characters from that side. And there's a situation, a particular situation that emerges at the inciting incident from that side of the equation. But there's also the death story side, which if you've got a traditional villain, which is where they are. And there's very little history, if any, with the characters on that side of the equation. And there's also a situation that emerges there. And it's these two stories actually colliding together that create your story. Those two situations emerge at the same time, creating a dilemma for your protagonist. And it is way more effective than any other model that I've ever seen. And it can be adapted to any genre, any scope and scale. It just makes it more complex, nuanced and layered. The conflict that you're capable of engineering for the sake of both the plot and your character's arc, it's way more fun to work with. And if you've got a weak concept, then in most cases, it'll die in act two. Act two is where all stories go to die, you know, that aren't really well engineered. And the dual story model, the life and death story model will help um, get you through act two because it gives you a ton of stuff to work with. So as an example, there's a featured character from the life story side and a featured character from the death story side. And your protagonist is kind of in the middle. If you kind of look at the way it would be laid out on a paper. And if we think about Die Hard, then John McClane is our protagonist, obviously. 
a life story, which is where a featured character that he has history with would be Holly Gennaro, his separated wife. And then on the death story, we've got a featured character also, which is Hans Gruber. And if you can engineer the relationships between those three characters, you've got yourself a pretty solid story. So the protagonist is your transformational avatar. Their whole purpose for existing is to change throughout the course of the story. The featured character from the life story, the Holly Gennaro type, is your thematic avatar. It helps to kind of voice the themes of your story, the lens through which you apply a theme in your story. And then the third character from the death story side, which I call the insider character, is the structural avatar. And this is, again, a different kind of philosophy for most people in that it is the ambition of that character that actually creates the structure of your entire story. They've got a plan that they've been executing that's been going pretty well until by accident your protagonist gets dragged into the middle of it and then all hell breaks, breaks loose. So <clears throat> those are the three main characters, the three main archetypes. Again, there's always exceptions. You can do it with two. You can even do it in one in extreme cases. But if you're telling a traditional story with a traditional bad guy or a traditional romantic interest, that's the interesting thing about the death story featured character is that they are the ones that are the catalyst for change. Your protagonist has not been able to evolve in their life up until now. And mm -hmm. if they were capable of that, then the people that they have history with would have been able to provide them with the whatever they needed to change. But it's not happening. It's this new energy that comes in and collides with their life, the Hans Gruber type, the Darth Vader type, that actually brings the catalyst for change. And it's their ambition that drives the story forward. And it's not until act three that the protagonist actually drives the story forward. They're not passive. I don't want that to sound like that's the case. They're never ever passive, but they're constantly reacting to the story that's being driven by that death story featured character, the insider type, the Darth Vader type. They're the ones with the drive, with the ambition, the plan that the protagonist gets caught up in. So it's a pretty, significantly different model than a lot of the other classics that, that are out there but obviously i believe in it and uh, a lot of the other people that i've been able to work with it really like it and so much of the story models and the, the books and everything out there are feeling really stale now because they've been the same way for 20 30 years um and this has been a real kind of breakthrough and an innovation in my mind it, it really helped me create much more complex and nuanced stories. And again, any scope scale, whatever you want to do, comedy, horror, it all, it'll adapt to any of that. But it's, it just gives you a much, um, every element has a much stronger and clearer kind of job to do within the model. And um, the results are just way more interesting, just right off the bat. Even in a mini like we did, we broke through a number of really interesting ways. And just rejigged some of the ideas that you brought to the table already. And it's just a matter of rearranging them and giving them a different task within the story. And suddenly everything starts to catch fire. Yeah, I think one of the things, especially when you think about 101, it's like, it's almost a difference in like reading a self-help book and going to therapy. It's like, a very, there's things that I couldn't notice about my own self until I start kind of doing these questions and have a, a third party there, like in addition to the, the work sure. itself. My, my issue probably with the latest one is like, my characters are not having a large enough transformation. And I think that was some, some clarity there. I would say in addition to making your own work better though, like doing even that mini version we did, it's almost like a new lens to watch films. I watched uh, 
movie called The Peanut Butter Falcon, which I'd seen before. It's a movie shot in North Carolina. And I saw, I was like, oh, this guy, it was actually a side character, has a secret trade, or I, I did kind of see things matching up a little bit differently. So it was very uh, different than what I've thought about before. So I think it's a great systematic way to to do things. Um, we're almost out of time. We'll just do one or two more. Do you have any advice for those people that are, they love the romanticism of just starting from scratch and trying to write the screenplay? I think there's something, you need a system for longevity, but any other thoughts about that? Yeah, I don't know too many people. Well, it all comes down to motivation. You know, like why is somebody yeah. writing? Are they writing for themselves or are they writing to become a professional? If you're writing for yourself and you're just exercising some kind of creative uh, muscle, then that's great, right? There's a personal therapy involved in it. It can be a really positive thing and you never really have to worry about whether or not your work is effective. And you can take as long as you want. You can make the process however you like to do it. Um, there's no pressure on you whatsoever to have anything perform in a particular way. But if there's any interest in becoming a pro and to getting specifically paid for your work, then what they call pantsing it isn't going to cut it. It's, it. It just won't. And I understand how people are really kind of in love with the this romantic idea that you just go away into a cabin or a French cafe and you start at page one, it was a dark and stormy night. And then by the end of the weekend, you've got your novel or your script or whatever it is. It just doesn't work that way. And it's a really painful, slow, isolated way to actually work. It's not as fun as it looks like on TV or in movies. Um, you need to share your work often. You need to test the work that you're doing. You need to know that what you're writing is effective. I don't talk in terms of good or bad. Those, I don't find that there's any real use to those kinds of conversations. Is the work effective? Because that forces you to explain what your goals for it were. I want it to have this kind of an effect. I want audiences to respond this way. Well, then it's real easy to test that and to see whether or not your work is effective. And if it's not, well, then you've got to do things differently. And I, a, a really airtight process that you can count on and go back to, I think is the only way that you can move forward and find success. Uh, you're eventually going to get there, whether you start there or whether somebody else forces you to go through that. Because just think about if you're up for a job, Say you're fortunate enough to be invited to an interview for a writer's room position. You're going to write on a TV show of some. They're going to ask you about your process. And if you don't have one, you're going to make them nervous. I don't know how this guy works. I don't know how this person actually pulls that off. I, I don't know how long they're going to take. They don't know how long they're going to take. They can't tell me what their developmental process is like. So write because you love it, yes. But choose early on why you're doing it what do you want from it and just be honest with yourself if you want to get paid to be a writer then it's start it's time to start looking for a mentor so that you can learn really quickly and it's time to start really thinking hard about process and answering as many of the whys as possible why are things formatted this way why does this story model work why do audiences respond to these kinds of things over and over and over again for years and years and years why, 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 why? The deeper the understanding you have about writing, the more success you're going to find, I think. I really appreciate you kind of coming on and going through the process with us. You want to tell people where they can follow you, find out more information, or maybe even like book an initial call to learn more about the StoryForge? Sure, yeah. I, I'd love to talk to anybody that's curious about it. No pressure. I'm not a salesman. I don't like getting sold. I don't like selling. So just want to have a conversation with me about what I do and how I might be able to help you. 
that's great. You can find uh, me at thescreenplayfactory.com. Um, there's obviously a, a way to get in touch with me there. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter as well. Uh, Jordan Morris there. Um, yeah, I'm just interested in talking to anybody and about their experiences of writing. And uh, even if we don't end up doing business together, I'd enjoy a chat. So if you're curious, I just reach out and uh, we'll talk about it. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. Before you take off, I want to give you a free gift. I'm giving you my first book, Ink by the Barrel, for free. That's the digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com. Inside this book, you'll learn how to annihilate writer's block by embracing Elizabeth Gilbert's playful trickster mentality. You can learn to weaponize your anxiety with Kevin Kelly's different is better approach. And learn how to defend your time with Ryan Holiday's calendar anorexia mindset. There's just a few other ideas in the book, Ink by the Barrel. It's also based on over 400 interviews I've done right here on Creative Principles. So go steal that book right now, Ink by the Barrel, to learn how to be a prolific writer. You can get your copy that's digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com, B-R-O-C-K-S-W-I-N-S-O-N.com. And if it's your first time here, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode.